Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, here we are, Monday morning. It's a brand new working week around Australia and, what, only five days until we all cast our votes in the 2022 federal election. It's great to have your company here on starterfm.com.au, on the iHeartRadio platform, on TuneIn, or if you're listening to us on the Prawncast, the podcast. Welcome to you. It is the 16th day of May. All the latest news on the way. Thanks to Air News, we'll get some great tunes for your Monday morning underway as well. And plenty to talk about this morning. Is it uh, perhaps a, uh, a desperate government trying desperately to cling on to power with this idea that you will be able to extricate some $50,000 if you're a first home buyer from your superannuation savings in order to enter the property market. I think that the policy has some some good points and some bad points, but at least it's a policy. And look, if it helps somebody, then I think I'm all for it, to be perfectly honest. Look, I understand it may cause some issues down the track. I don't know. I, you know, anything that f- helps first-time buyers. But I'll go through the full details of this new uh, policy from the Morrison government. Will it change Scott Morrison's fortunes in the final days of the election campaign? I don't think so. I still believe that Anthony Albanese is heading toward the lodge, and I still believe Labor will probably win, well, well in excess of 76 seats. I think they may be heading for 78 to 80. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Anyway, many are getting their votes in early with pre-polling absolutely going off around Australia. More than, what, 1.4 million, I think, uh, as of late yesterday, had already cast their vote. Now, that is not a good sign for an incumbent government. All right, we'll get into some other stories this morning. What about a trip over the Blue Mountains? Would you be happy with a tunnel being constructed, which would make a a trip, if you like, to the central west of New South Wales from Greater Sydney quicker? Will, as proponents say, it open up uh, areas and regions like Bathurst, Orange and Mudgee to Greater Sydney? Uh, Well, it'll shave a little time off the travelling, I guess, but at what cost? And... What about any environmental impacts? I'm going to talk about that story a little later this morning as well. Sadly, it's just been a, a hell of a year for Australian cricket. Uh, yesterday, we learnt we lost yet another Australian icon this time around, Andrew Simons, who no doubt will be up there somewhere having a beer with Shane Warne as we speak. Anyway, I'll go through the details of his tragic and untimely death at the age of only 46 on Saturday night near Townsville. Uh, What else has been? Well, there's plenty to talk about, and I'll get through uh, as much as I can this morning. If you want to comment, you can do so on the Facebook page. Many of you have, and I'll get to some of your comments too on this new policy from the federal government on using super 
up to $50,000 as a deposit on a home loan. So I'll get your thoughts on that from the Facebook page. But, of course, you can call us anytime, 24-7-0406-521-250. Marcus Paul in the Morning Hotline is open, as you know, right now. Let's get into it on this Monday morning. It's great to have your company. This is Marcus Paul in the Morning. Okay, Monday morning, great to have your company. Marcus Paul in the morning, 0406 521250, our hotline number, and many of you commenting on the Facebook page. Well, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has unveiled a brand new policy to help first home buyers unlock up to $50,000 of their super in a final attempt to retain the nation's top job. So, the PM will allow first home buyers to unlock their super to buy a house in what's been described as a last ditch effort to win the election. The Prime Minister announced the bold policy at the Brisbane campaign launch yesterday, revealing that if re-elected, he will allow workers to raid their super piggy bank to buy a house. Workers will be able to withdraw up to $50,000, but the scheme won't commence until July the 1st next year. That's 2023. Scott Morrison said, under the Super Home Buyer Scheme, first home buyers will be able to invest up to 40% of their superannuation, up to a maximum of $50,000 to help with the purchase of their first home. There are no income or property caps under the scheme, with eligibility restricted to first home buyers who must have separately saved 5% of the deposit. The proposal was first floated when Mr Morrison was Treasurer and championed by Housing Minister Michael Sukar, but vetoed by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Now, it's also been championed by Liberal MP Tim Wilson under a home-first, super-second policy. Now, for many people under 30, the scheme would wipe out their super savings. But for older workers not buying a home until their early 40s, it would have less impact. We want to further help Australians get past what is the biggest hurdle on their path to home ownership, the Prime Minister said. And we started this process with the Home Guarantee Scheme, and that is the difficulty of saving for a deposit and being able to use their own money with which to do it. That's why a re-elected coalition government will allow first-home buyers to invest a responsible portion of their own superannuation savings into their first home. Now, the proposal would apply to the purchase of new and existing homes. Scott Morrison yesterday said whatever amount is invested will be returned to your super when you sell the home, including the share of the capital gain from the sale of that home. The maximum amount uh, able to be invested under this plan is the lower of $50,000 each individual or 40% of their total superannuation balance. Superannuation is there to help Australians in their retirement. The evidence shows that. The best thing we can do to help Australians achieve financial security in their retirement is to help them own their first home. All right, well, that's what Scott Morrison had to say yesterday. Now, he also said it wasn't right you could use super for an investment property, but not residential. 
You can already use your super to purchase an investment property, but not your own home, he said. Other countries, including New Zealand and Canada, also have policies that allow people to use their retirement savings to help them buy their home. And under a Morrison government, you will be able to do that too. This is about increasing, increasing the choices available to you within your super. It's your money, said the PM. All right, well, how will it exactly work? I'll go through those details in just a couple of moments. But Superannuation Minister, Senator the Honourable Jane Hume, said the design of the scheme would ensure it was a two-for-one scheme. Under the Super Home Buyer Scheme, you keep building your super savings in the home you live in. When you sell, the amount you invested is returned to your super, plus a share of any capital gain, according to Minister Hume. It gets the balance right, helping first home buyers break into the market, but protecting their retirement savings. She went on to say the Liberals know it's Australians' money, not the super funds and not the government's. Australians work hard to earn it. They work hard to save it. $1 in $10 of everything they earn is saved in super right now. Superannuation is there to help Australians in their retirement. And the Super Home Buyer Scheme will ensure Australians can use those savings they are responsibly building up to improve their quality of life now and standard of living in retirement. Well, what does the opposition say? Labor's campaign spokesman Jason Clare will outline the ALP's official response, but Labor frontbencher Stephen Jones was quick to slam the plan. Scott Morrison has just trashed any vestiges of economic credibility. He claims Costello, Hockey, Turnbull, all said super for housing was a dumb idea that would blow up the housing market. But Scott, according to, uh, of course, (laughs) Stephen Jones, doesn't give a damn. It's all about the politics for this bloke. Now, Labor had announced an equity scheme that would allow low-income workers to have the government cover 40% of the cost of a new home and 30% of an existing home. As a result, the mortgage would be reduced by the same amount. There are no income limits on the coalition scheme that would allow you to withdraw up to $50,000 or 40% of your super. What do you make of it all? You can comment on the Facebook page. I've got a post up on it. I'd love to get your thoughts. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back. Monday morning. Good to have your company on this the 16th day of May. Uh, we are literally five days away from the federal election and in a last-ditch effort to get across the line and retain governments, the Prime Minister and his new policy will allow home buyers to use superannuation in final bid, just days before the election. So in other words, the super $50,000 worth will be unlocked for you to contribute to the deposit of a first home. This is for first home buyers only. So how will it all work? Well, here's a guide to the so-called super home buyer scheme. The facts. Under the super home buyer scheme, first home buyers will be able to invest up to 40% of their superannuation to a maximum of $50,000 to help with the purchase of their first home. People will be able to use this scheme in conjunction with the Home Guarantee Scheme and the First Home Super Saver Scheme. It is slated to start, not this year, but the new financial year beginning 2023, so July the 1st next year. Who will be eligible? Well, the scheme is for first home buyers. 
and applicants must have a separate 5% deposit to be eligible. Couples can access the scheme together if both members are eligible. Buyers can only buy the property for owner-occupier purposes, so no investment properties, and they must live in the home for at least 12 months. Eligibility is not dependent on age, on a person's property, or their income thresholds. So how will it work? Well, individuals will need to apply to the Australian Taxation Office to access the scheme. The scheme will apply to both new and existing homes, and the amount invested will be returned to the superannuation fund once the home is sold. If the home is not purchased, the money must be returned to the fund. The amount to be repaid to the super fund equates to the original amount invested from the superannuation, in other words, up to $50,000, together with a proportionate share of any money that's made from the sale of the property, that is capital gain, or loss, of course, from the sale of the property as well. And look, the way our housing market is, fair to say it will be a, a gain. All right, well, what do you make of it? Let me know. You can give us a call, 0406521250 to have your say. Look, many people commenting already on the Facebook page. That is, first-time buyers will be able to use up to 40% of their super for a first-time deposit. Richard says, Marcus, it will create massive problems down the track. People are struggling now to have enough super to retire comfortably without taking 40% out early. You can guarantee the same people who need this are the same ones who already took $10,000 out during the pandemic and have nothing to show for it. All right, well, that's what he says. Lachlan says it's reckless. Marcus, super isn't there for the government to let people dip into when things are a bit tough for the government. They want to get rid of the old age pension, but they keep letting my generation spend our super. How is it going to accumulate enough wealth for retirement if we keep being allowed to spend it early? It's dangerous and will force vulnerable people to need to work until they're basically dead. What happens if there is a massive housing crash or interest rates keep going up and people get foreclosed? All that money should have been safely accumulating compound interest over decades, gone. It's terrible policy. All right, Julia says this is the same government, Marcus, that already let people raid their super when COVID hit and now here take some more. How are these people supposed to live without in or live out their golden years? ScoMo already calls the pension a handout and can't wait for us all to get on an Indu card. The future looks golden. All right, well, look, at most, in fact, I would say 90-odd percent of you who are commenting on the Facebook page are calling this policy a total disaster. Michelle says it will do nothing to make housing affordable and will shift the problem to someone else at some other time. Matthew says, Marcus, at least they are ensuring any money taken out gets returned when the house is sold, along with any capital gain, so people will still have that money for retirement probably going to pump house prices up even more though, which along with inflation and rising interest rates is going to make it difficult to afford the repayments. And on the the, uh, responses go. So if you want to leave your thoughts, you can do so on the Marcus Paul in the Morning Facebook page. It's good to have your company. 
Here we are on Monday morning, just a few days out from the federal election. Monday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning, 0406521250. Our 24-7 hotline is open for you. Maybe you'd like to send me a text or an email as well. You can do that, marcus.paul at starterfm. Well, as ScoMo prepared to hold his formal election campaign launch in Brisbane yesterday, Anthony Albanese held his own competing phone launch a short distance away. I say faux launch because Labor already did its real one weeks ago. But this was the same sort of vibe, a room packed with party supporters and volunteers, eager to cheer at the uh, applause line, speeches from politicians packed with such lines and a lengthy address from the leader himself. Now, what made yesterday's uh, Labor presentation even more interesting was the fact that Albo was joined by former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, also Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, former Treasurer Wayne Swan and possible future Treasurer Jim Chalmers. Also, Senator Murray Watts was there and the party's candidate for Brisbane, Madonna Jarrett. Now, the crowd were warmed up with a video compilation of the greatest hits from Labor's TikTok account. <laughs> Uh, there were speeches from Kevin Rudd, Mr Chalmers, Ms Palaszczuk and of course Albo, which all shared two common factors, shameless Queensland parochialism and digs at Scott Morrison's attempt to reinvent himself in the campaign's dying years. All right, well, I have to say Kevin Rudd stood out for me. Speaking in his usual tapestry of cliches, according to reporters, he said Australians were, quote, fed up to the back teeth, unquote, with Mr Morrison. They're fed up with corruption. They're fed up with the incompetence. They're fed up with the blame game. They're fed up with this bloke who doesn't hold the hose. They're fed up with a government that has a zero plan for Australia's future. Did you see Scotty from Marketing's most recent attempt at personal rebranding? Mr Rudd added, using his favourite nickname for the Prime Minister. Seriously, with one week to go before an election, Scotty is now hoping he can wave a magic wand and conjure up the fairies of the bottom of the garden. And hey presto, vote for me after the years in office because I promise to be a softer, gentler Scotty in the future. Well, pigs might fly, said Kevin Rudd. Mr Chalmers was perhaps a little less mocking in his tone, but certainly not in his message. Uh, Mr Chalmers said Scott Morrison started this campaign saying people know who I am. It's only now that it's dawned on him that that's the problem. <laughs> so now he wants you to believe that the last three or four years or the last nine years, if you like, were just a phase that he was going through. To give you an example of the appeal to Queenslanders' parochialism, the Shadow Treasurer also said the following, This is the difference Scott Morrison thinks Queensland is necessary for his own political survival. Anthony Albanese knows Queensland is absolutely vital to Australia's success. Our close affinity with Queenslanders is real, said Mr Chalmers. I've seen it for myself in every corner of this state. I've seen the respect that Albo has for us. I've seen the belief that he has for us as well. Another example from Anastasia Palaszczuk, 
who as Premier of the state was quite suited to the job. Albo knows Queensland, she said. He's driven the length and breadth of our state. He's not going to deny Queensland our fair share, like we've seen from Scott Morrison. He knows the issues and he understands. The Queensland Premier said, instead of picking fights with us, whether it's on disaster recovery, healthcare funding or infrastructure, Albo is someone who will work with me to get the job done for Queensland. All right, well, Albo uh, entered the conference after another video, this time the one featuring a voiceover from Russell Crowe. Because if you've gone to the trouble of getting Maximus Decimus Meridius, you might as well make thorough use of him. His speech featured a laundry list of policies and, of course, the same appeal to Queensland. He said he would be a Prime Minister who visits Queensland even when there's no election on. All right, well, look, it's pretty obvious that I think Labor uh, believe there are, you know, a fair chance in Queensland. The polls are certainly suggesting that. You know, it's all politics. We're only days out from a federal election, and I think it was a good move yesterday for Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers uh, to, you know, bring Kevin Rudd and Anastasia Palaszczuk into the foray because, look, it's getting the kind of recognition that I thought we, you know, that obviously it is. I'm talking about it, and so are other media. Anyway, if you want to leave your comments, you can 0406521250 or on the Marcus Paul in the Morning uh, Facebook page. There's plenty of posts up there for you to leave your, your thoughts and comments on. All right, welcome back. Monday morning, the 16th day of May. Excuse the French, but it's been a shitty old year when it comes to losing cricket greats. The cricket world is in mourning again following the tragic death of popular former test all-rounder Andrew Simons in a car accident yesterday. Well, it was Saturday night, I think, that the accident happened. Well, it was Saturday night, just out of Townsville. I was shocked um, when I read it yesterday. Uh, So young and so desperately sad. Simons was involved in an accident outside Townsville where he's been living in his cricket retirement. The flamboyant all-rounder was one of cricket's most popular characters during the peak of his career before forging a successful career as a media identity on Fox Sports. Tributes poured in for the lovable cricketer on Sunday, often referred to as a rogue, if you like, with Fox colleagues and Adam Gilchrist, Michael Vaughan and others leading the charge. Queensland officially, Queensland Police released a statement to say the single car crash occurred late on Saturday night at Harvey Range, where it's believed Simons was driving up Harvey Range Road near Alice River Bridge when the car left the road and rolled. Paramedics attempted to revive him, but he later died at the scene as a result of his injuries. Awful stuff. Simon's family issued a statement confirming his passing and appreciated people's sympathy and best wishes and asked, of course, that their privacy be respected. He was only 46, Andrew Simons. He played 26 tests and was a crucial member of Australia's all-conquering one-day side, twice helping deliver World Cup glory. And we know that his death follows the tragic passing 
of longtime teammate Shane Warne and fellow legend Rod Marsh, who both died of heart attacks back in March. Fox Sports Executive Director Steve Crawley wrote in a statement, Andrew Simons was one of a kind. We awake to this shocking news and our deepest sympathies are with his wife Laura, two children and all of his workmates and dear friends through Fox Sports and the cricketing fraternity. Awful story. It really, really is. He was an all-rounder. His nickname was Roy. He was born on June the 9th, 1975. He made his test debut against Sri Lanka at the Gaul back in 2008. He played his last test for Australia at the MCG against South Africa in 2008. He played 26 tests. He scored 1,426 runs at an average of 40.61, his highest score 162 not out. He bowled a bit as well. He took 24 wickets. In one-day internationals, he represented his country 198 times. He had an average of 39.75 in one-day internationals, a strike rate of 92.4. His highest score in one-day cricket was 156, and he took 133 wickets. In T20 internationals, he represented Australia 14 times. He had an average of 48.14, a strike rate Big strike rate, 169.34, and his highest score was 84 not out. And in T20 internationals, he took eight wickets. Sad, sad story indeed. Andrew Simons, Valet. Yeah, welcome back, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Uh, those who have listened to me for quite some time and know a bit of my history uh, would know that I studied at university in Bathurst, Charles Sturt, in beautiful Bathurst. And I was, uh, of course, living originally in Sydney. That's where I grew up. And many a time I travelled the Great Western Highway uh, between Penrith and Bathurst, going via the beautiful Blue Mountains. Well... Uh, the trip back then, I think, took about two and a half, nearly three hours. I think it's a bit shorter these days due to some good roadworks, etc. But why is there a discussion about a tunnel? Well, they say it'll connect Greater Sydney and Central Western New South Wales if a tunnel is built beneath the Blue Mountains. What do you make of it? Apart from cutting times, any new road tunnel proposed as part of the Greater Western Highway, which would be the longest in Australia, will provide a boost for commuters for another reason, says this story. Look, I don't know, probably it would... Oh, well, look, it would certainly ease some holiday congestion in the Blue Mountains. And, you know, there's an argument to suggest that it would open up the Central West, places like Bathurst, Orange, Mudgee, etc., to Greater Sydney. Uh, you can still get there, but it would, you know, it'd cut the cost. Uh, well, the cost? It depends on whether it's a, a toll tunnel or not. My bet is it probably would be. It would be Australia's longest road tunnel. And, you know, uh, those who are fighting for it say it would slash commutes. Anyway, yesterday, the Sunday Telegraph revealed the 11-kilometre tunnel currently under proposal 
would be toll-free, okay, and stretch from east of Blackheath to a place called Little Hartley. The tunnel proposal is part of the Greater Western Highway upgrade from Katoomba to Blackheath to fix the much maligned stretch and would shave 30 minutes off commutes in busy holiday periods. Minister for Regional Transport and Roads, Sam Faraway, said the government will make the Western Highway great again. The 11-kilometre tunnel delivers the vision that I think the state, the people in the Central West, but more broadly the communities of the Central and Western New South Wales, want to see around making that highway an actual highway. Um, She went on, I think after the success of West Connects and North Connects, the New South Wales government can build tunnels. Wow, they... Really? The success of West Connects and North Connects? Well, I suppose they're great pieces of infrastructure, but you've got to pay through the nose to travel on the minister. Anyway, um, the minister thinks it's the only way to bring about efficiency and that road infrastructure over the Blue Mountains. Unlike the North and West Connects projects, the Blue Mountains Tunnel will be toll-free, they say. Okay, rule a line under that. The Great Western Highway Upgrade Project will also widen the existing highway to two lanes in both directions. Now, Mr Faraway said the tunnel will also create a more resilient highway in the face of extreme weather events like the recent floods, which caused landslips restricting traffic in Mount Victoria, for instance. He said, essentially, the connectivity from Greater Sydney to the Central West and Western New South Wales was cut. It was a couple of hours delay in peak times. A tunnel will remove that completely. Deputy Premier Paul Toole, now he's from Bathurst. He said the tunnel would open up the regions west of Sydney to tourists. He said this is a complex ambitious plan but we're on track for shovels to hit the grounds on the east and west stages of the upgrade early next year because we're getting on with the job of building a safer stronger road network across all parts of the state he said the blackheath to little hartley tunnel design features dual carriageways for both eastbound and westbound motorists in separate twin tunnels and a gentler gradient to cut travel times and improve freight efficiencies now mr tool said nearly 4,000 full-time jobs will be created in the peak construction period in the five years to when it should open in 2027. As part of the highway upgrade, new truck stops and bus stops will be built. The Great Blue Mountains Trail will be upgraded. New concrete bridges will be built over the valley near Pulpit Hill and new parking at the Pulpit Hill Heritage Area will be made available. The project, of course, is open to consultation and an environmental impact assessment will be available later this year. Well, look, I think it's a good idea. I don't have an issue with it, particularly if they are talking about it not being told. What are your thoughts? Let me know. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning. As we know, there was yet another underworld gangland shooting in Sydney in the last couple of days. I read with interest a story yesterday by News Limited's Ben Pike. Gangsters new fight to keep enemy burial prots at a distance. (laughs) Sydney's gang wars have moved to a new location, Rookwood Cemetery with associates desperate to ensure enemies are buried well away from each other. 
I mean, what a ridiculous thing to be uh, writing about. But, I mean, it's true crime. Absolutely it is. As the bodies pile up in Sydney's gangland war, a new battle has begun over where they are finally buried. Yesterday, the Sunday Telegraph revealed associates of slain gangster Omar Zahid refused to let him be buried near his enemy at Rookwood Cemetery. Associates did not want Omar, who was shot at an Auburn gym on Tuesday, alongside his Comanchero brother Tarek, to be buried near Mahmoud Brownie Ahmed, who was assassinated just weeks earlier. Sources said the request was made less than 48 hours before Zahid's funeral on Friday. Tarek, of course, is still fighting for life in hospital. They said they did not want Omar Zahid's body anywhere near the other side of the warring faction, the source said. Imagine the family of the victim coming back to visits and there being someone from the other side right there. It's a big issue. There are concerns about the location of burials going forward and the potential problems it could cause. Ahmad, of course, was buried in the Muslim section of Rookwood Cemetery on April 30 after being shot outside friend Ali Bennett's Greenacre Mansion. Now, it's understood a flare-up was averted when the associates realised Zahid would be buried in a pre-arranged plot near another family member away from Ahmad's grave. The Muslim section at Rookwood Cemetery is also the final resting place of slain Comanchero boss Mahmoud Mikhawi, who was buried there back in 2018 after being shot in a black Mercedes. Bilal Hamzi, who was shot and killed in 2021 outside an upmarket Japanese restaurant in the city, is also buried in the area. While there is apparently ample Muslim burial space across Sydney, there is a strong link between the Sunni Lakemba Mosque and Rookwood Cemetery. The issue is expected to again arise when plans are made to farewell Rami Iskandar, who's the nephew of Ahmed, who was shot dead at his home on Saturday just gone. Yep, another one. Iskandar was only 23, he's a father, and he will also likely be buried at Rookwood Cemetery this week. It is Muslim custom, of course, to bury the dead as soon as possible. But boy, oh boy. I mean, did you think we'd ever be reading a story about the possibility of problems at a Sydney cemetery because warring faction members are being laid to rest close to each other? It's a ridiculous scenario if it wasn't so serious. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Monday morning on the 16th day of May. Marcus Paul in the morning, 0406-521-250 is our hotline if you want to touch base. Well, this week I read Australia became a world leader, but it wasn't for a feat of engineering or some sort of sporting achievement. It was an unwelcome title. According to global databases, Australia led the world in per capita COVID infections. If you ignore the tiny islands of Montserrat and the Falklands, Now, on Friday, 54,591 cases were reported across Australia on the back of two consecutive days of around 58,000 cases, with Western Australia bracing for new infection records. You don't hear much about it, certainly not on the election trail either. 
Saturday's numbers moved the official seven-day average to more than 48,000 daily cases, putting Australia behind only Germany and the United States in total new daily cases recorded. Some countries, such as Denmark, have scrapped COVID-19 testing recommendations and others have scaled back testing regimes, meaning getting like-for-like -like comparisons across the world is now more difficult. However, in Australia, hospitalisations and deaths are also tracking upwards, with the average number of COVID-related daily deaths hitting 40, and that has doubled sadly since March. But with the country in the middle of an election campaign in which COVID, as I say, barely rates a mention, a war raging in the Ukraine, the cost of living rises and following more than two years of COVID restrictions, the virus has, understandably to some, dropped off the radar. And the experts say they understand. I mean, we're all over it. But the numbers we are seeing in Australia are extraordinary. So many people are still very, very sick. There's a disconnect between what's happening with these disruptions to our lives and why it's happening. And there is a fear of COVID of the past and COVID now. After two years of extreme impacts, governments and politicians are now simply afraid to talk about COVID. Instead, they have removed mask mandates and kept their heads in the sand, if you like, ignoring the key elements of why cases and hospitalisations had now increased transmission. Well, COVID now is still having a massive impact on society, but we're not hearing about it. And you've got to remember as well, lots of COVID is bad for business. We can't ignore that. As a nation, we're also ignoring the health impacts. How many of the 350,000 plus active cases in Australia right now will have chronic impacts? Overseas data suggests around 10% of them, and that will impact your heart, impact your lungs, organs and brain. It's not as if there's nothing going on. Now, according to University of Melbourne epidemiologist Nancy Baxter, She's spoken to the ACT and says the numbers may get worse. We're at a point where COVID is now one of the major killers of Australians and probably by the end of the year is going to be one of the top three. She told the ABC with increasing case numbers, new sub-variants will be coming in. This may drive it even further, which would have a bigger impact. Dear oh dear. And as the professor suggests, cases will go up. The emergence of new Omicron sub-variants in Australia is complicating matters. Experts suggest the variants may lead to people becoming reinfected, leading to another rise in cases, as is being seen right now in South Africa and parts of the United States. Westmead Institute virologist Tony Cunningham, who has studied the evolution of viruses for more than four decades, said the continued emergence of alternative variants across the world is very worrying. The problem is we don't know enough about them yet. We don't know if one of these new variants will acquire the capacity to infect the lungs at the same degree that, say, Delta does. There's COVID right across Australia, and where there's more virus in the community, there's more likelihood of variants emerging. University of South Australia epidemiologist Adrian Easterman, he said, 
that cases will go up across Australia and hospitalisation will continue to go up as the cases increase as well. Our governments are giving out the message that it's all over. It's not. We are at the end game. We have reasonably good vaccinations, good treatments, and at least a reasonable chunk of the population is immune, but it's not over. Look, one sector of the community acutely aware that COVID is not over is the country's healthcare workers. This week, the Royal Australian College of Physicians reiterated its call for urgent action over burnout and exhaustion in the sector, saying there is no respite. Australian Medical Association President Dr Omar Khorshid said healthcare workers felt there was a deliberate glossing over of the ongoing challenges that COVID-19 was putting on the healthcare system. We're a bit stuck, is what he said. We're treating COVID as if it's a cold and saying, no masks, play on. But there are still a lot of people coming into hospitals with COVID and, of course, there's no staff. Uh, Dr Korshid said healthcare workers are fed up, particularly around the messaging from politicians that the pandemic was, quote, over. In Perth, where he's based, they're saying it could be 20 to 25,000 cases a day soon. And he went on to say we've had a lot of anecdotal reports of people not testing themselves or when they get a positive test, not recording the result with the government. Well, it is a worry. Do you think that our politicians should be speaking more about the COVID-19 pandemic during the final week of campaigning? I think they should. And I think they've also all dropped the ball on it. COVID is still in our community, yet we don't hear hardly anything about it. Marcus Paul in the morning. The Logies. Well, um, I don't normally, you know, get involved in it. I'm not really into, you know, commercial television that much. But um, if you're into Sophie Monk, <clears throat> she apparently is the new face of the Logies. After making an impression, good or bad, on the red carpet for a, a couple of decades, Sophie Monk is making her love for the Logies official. All right, well, you'll all be able to sleep better now. The Gold Coast Golden Girl was announced as the face of the 2022 TV Week Logies, which will return to the Gold Coast on June 19 after a two-year pandemic uh, break. Monk attended a breakfast event at the Burley Pavilion yesterday where nominations for this year's awards were announced. Uh, she said she loves the Logies, she loves getting dressed up and celebrating local stuff. It's such a fun night, I love looking at the fashion and I get to dress up, but someone does it for me so I look respectable. See, told you we'd be able to sleep better knowing all of this rubbish. I think it's going to be the best one yet because we haven't done it for a while. Not to sound like a nerd burger, but it's impossible just to acknowledge people in the industry. Monk said she was opting for a classic and comfy look for 2022 rather than following a fashion trend apparently saying her golden gown in 2019 was her favorite red carpet moment i've got a billion of why did i wear that she said sometimes it's my hair i was like why did i try that why did i tease it some dresses weigh five kilograms and you can't enjoy the night oh sophie you poor thing must be horrible being you Anyway, Sophie Monk, who was apparently newly married, has just filmed another season of 
as the host of Beauty and the Geek. Oh, what a brilliant show that is. She will soon film Love Island in Spain. Well, she'll be able to get a bikini top on. While also preparing to launch her own line of Ugg boots. She said she's tried everything. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm known for one thing and I love that. I feel very lucky to have such good fun jobs because you never know in this industry, I'm pretty effing lucky. <laughs> That's the end of the story. All right. And I know we're all going to feel a lot better and sleep better that Sophie Monk has been announced as the new face of the Logie Awards. Marcus Paul in the morning. I'm such a bitch. Okay, something a little lighter before we knock off today. And uh, look, I don't think it was a surprise, but... Ukraine has won the 2022 Eurovision Song Contest by a landslide, with Kalush Orchestra finishing 193 points ahead of its competition for its folk hip-hop performance of Stefania. The group claimed a total of 631 points after it was awarded a whopping 439 points from audience televotes, adding to the 192 points from the jury of 40 countries around Europe and Australia. Kalush Orchestra's performance of Stefania, which was written about frontman Oli Pasuk's mother, struck a chord with viewers with the song becoming an anthem for war-torn for, for war Ukraine. I mean, it included lyrics like, I'll always find my way home, even if all roads are destroyed. Well, talk about art imitating life. Anyway, uh, the lead singer in a statement said, thank you, thank you so much for supporting Ukraine. This is a victory for every Ukrainian. All right, well, who came uh, second? Ain't no second prize. <laughs> well, given that there's a war on as, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, I don't think the United Kingdom Sam Ryder, who came second, will be complaining too much. Sam earned 466 points for his performance of Spaceman, followed by Spain's Chanel, who stunned the audience with her vocals and dancing skills during her performance. By the way, her performance was of slow-mo, not scomo. Anyway, I think it's good. Those small on-stage on gestures, Eurovision performers also paid tribute to Ukrainians who were fighting back against a, a Russian invasion. Uh, many, including Germany's Malik Harris, who placed last in the grand final, shared a tribute to Ukraine at the end of his performance when he turned over his acoustic guitar to reveal a Ukrainian flag with the words peace written right across it. And Eurovision fans took to social media to congratulate the winners, uh, Kalush Orchestra, and of course, all showing, I think importantly, solidarity to Ukraine. Yeah, even the Ukrainian government, you've melted our hearts, friends, and it matters the world to us during this time. We send all your love and support to our brave freedom defenders and along the front line. There we go. Yeah, well, look, there'll be no complaints, I don't think, from anybody. And well done to the winners. And if it cheers the hearts of a war-torn nation, a nation under invasion, from Russia, then I'm all for it. Ukraine wins Eurovision 2022. 
All right, well, that's it for Monday. Thank you for your company here on starterfm.com.au. Please stick with us for the rest of the day. Some great beats right across your workday on the way. Uh, maybe you're on the iHeartRadio platform or tune in. We appreciate whichever way you listen to us. And also, a little later today on the Prawncast podcast, which will be uploaded. If you do listen back to the Prawncast, do me a favour, please, and just download it on your uh, socials so we can get more people tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow between uh, 7 and 9. It'll be great to have your company then on Tuesday. Bye for now. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, mate, this will get you the goodie.